All right, so let's go talk about our topic today. In, in men's ministry, we've been talking about the topic of Ephesians. We've been going to the book of Ephesians. I thought I'd share with you one of the studies that we did. So if you would, make your way to the chapter 4 of Ephesians. Uh, it's a great blessing, the book of Ephesians. I trust you've read it at least a couple times in your lifetime. But it's good to go to the study and to study it. Um, Ephesians 4 is our text for today. I think you have the notes there in your, your bulletin if you want to follow along there with the points on in our bulletin. But the, the first three chapters of Ephesians are, are more about the Lord showing us the spiritual blessing that we have in Christ Jesus. The privilege that we have because we believe is in Christ that our Lord gives to us. And then chapter 4 through 6, Paul gives more, because you have these spiritual blessings for three chapters, what should you do? How should you act out? What's the application of your faith? Because you have been blessed by Christ in many ways over. He gives us our marching order, so to speak, in chapter 4 to 6. Or he gives us the commands in which we need to, need, to, need to obey. And so, for example, Philippians would tell us in 127, only connect yourselves in a manner where the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And chapter 4 is basically about standing firm and one united church together upon the gospel in light of the blessing that, that he's given to us. Well, what are those spiritual blessings that are spoken about in the first three chapters that we're supposed to stand strong upon. So kind of just briefly, Ephesians 1 and 4 starts off, it says, because you were chosen by God, here's how you should walk later on. Ephesians 1, 7, because you were redeemed by Christ and by his blood, here's how you should walk. Because he has made to us know the mystery of his will, the Jews and the Gentiles will be both together, saved together, here's how you should walk in Christ. Because you have an inheritance in heaven and hope in Christ, here is how you should walk. And because of all the blessings that are described to you previously in the first two chapters, here is how a Christian should walk, their faith. And now in chapter 4, as you look through verses 4 to 1 to 6, Paul tells us more specifically what that walk should look like. So let's just go ahead and read 4, 1 to 6. Therefore, I, the prison of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There was one body and one Spirit, just also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's what our Lord tells us that we need to, 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 to do as we walk. And we'll break down some of the points you see there in chapter 4, 1 through 6 that we go through, how you should walk that walk, that, that lowly walk we're called God gives us to have, the humble, broken walk he asks us to do in light of with the blessing that we've give, been given to us. So our first point of notes there you can see is, number one, the call for a worthy walk. God calls to have a worthy walk. He says in verse number one, therefore I... Prison of the Lord, Paul says, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which which you have been called. Paul starts up right away, but tells us that, that tell us who he is. Right away he says, Well, I am the prison of the Lord, he says. A unique description to start off a chapter. I'm a prisoner, a prison of the Lord. He tells us that that the walk needs to be worthy because he is a prisoner. And he's not speaking about him being a prisoner in Rome necessarily, although he was a prisoner in Rome, right? But that's not the prison that which he speaks about him, he may be part of. Ultimately, he's a, he's a prisoner of Christ. He's controlled by Christ. Although he is in Rome when he writes this, this, uh, this letter to us, ultimately, he's a servant 
a minister of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And he describes himself in that manner. He's willing to do whatever he has to do to serve Christ. He's, a, he's captive to Christ's will and desires, and he, he wants to be that. So prisoner here is used in a very positive way. It's good to be a slave for Christ. It's good to be a servant for Christ. It's good to be a prisoner for Christ. These are all positive things. And Paul starts out that way, you know what? I am under Christ's control. I want to do whatever he asks me to do. Then he says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of calling, which, which you have been called Paul says, I implore you, or it means to entreat you. The Greek word for entreat is parakeleo, which means to call to one side. Paul calls us to his side and begs and implores us to walk in the manner which is worthy of our faith. He calls along his side to say, you know what? We need to walk in that manner. Paul, Paul is very intense here in his ministry. He begs and implores to, to do these things. And that's the way in which Paul lived his life. He pleaded with the Corinthians to stop living like the world. He begged the Galatians to stand on the liberty which they have in Christ Jesus. Paul's an imploring and beggar. He pleaded with King Agrippa to hear his testimony, how Christ changes heart and life. And King Agrippa ultimately said, in a short time, you have persuaded me to become a Christian. Paul was a man of intense passion, as God's word is. We should never read God's word and take it lightly, read it in a very casual manner, as if it's any other book on the library bookshelf. This is a passionate book by which people give their lives for, that died for. And when you preach God's word and speak about God's word, we should always do it with passion in our, in our hearts, enthusiasm in our minds. We should never be, have any kind of indifference. And Paul has no indifference in his voice here. He's clear to us. He says, you know what? God's word is authority and with command, is love and passion, and I'm going to speak with that way. I implore you, I beg you. Um, Alex Montoya, one of the pastor teachers at Grace Community Church, I love Alex Montoya. He's a great speaker. Why? Because he speaks with passion and enthusiasm. He, he gets in the back of his mind. Never should there be a preacher who's boring as they speak God's word to the people. Because when the people go away, we're saying this is a boring book. Nothing to follow. It doesn't change hearts or lives. It's just another narration that we need to follow. It's another book of fiction, perhaps. Alex Montoya said this. If you love your people, you cannot ever preach a bad sermon. What we need today is preachers and pulpits who preach with authority, not giving suggestions, opinions, not making some remark. But every time you declare God's word, say, thus says the Lord. And one of the funnier ones I heard, like from Alex Montoya, he says, when you preach a sermon, don't give them a little taquito, he says. Give them the whole barito, he says. Give them the whole word of God. You know, that's good, you know, to the Mexican culture. Don't give them a little bit, just, just throw it out there, you know. Give it all to God's word. And Paul tells us that we have to walk in a manner which is worthy of, of our faith. We have to walk that walk, he says. And notice how it doesn't say you, need to, you don't need to, to run our faith question really is, well, why do we walk our faith and not run the faith? We're supposed to stand firm upon, upon Satan. We get that. We're supposed to run away and flee sin, right? As Joseph did. But we're called to walk our faith and not run our faith. So the question really is, well, why do we walk our faith? And the answer is because that's our daily pattern, isn't it? Of walking. I run sometimes, but my usual pattern of walk is walking around this world. It's our daily routine. Our faith every single day we walk our faith. And it needs to be consistent as we walk. Consistent pattern all the time. And Paul implores, he begs to walk our faith, which is daily, every single day. Point number two in your notes there. The characteristic of this worthy walk, 
Paul says to walk in a manner which is where the call, which, which, which you have been called by God, he says to, to do so with what in verse number two? With all humility, it says, and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. This is how we are to walk our Christian walk. He starts off to say, well, what characterizes a Christian is to walk a walk which is one with humility. Humbleness characterizes the Christian. And having known that you've you been elected from salvation from the return times, you're redeemed by Christ, and inheritance has been given to you, first three chapters. What do you got to do after that? You got to make sure your walk is one which is humble. Which is certainly a challenge for all of us because humbleness does not characterize us often. It means to, to have a lowliness of mind. And I was surprised to learn that the Greeks and the Romans did not even have a word for humility because they're not humble people. They, the Romans used the word instead, humilitas, meaning to be shameful lowering. But that is very different than the position of lowering oneself and one's, one's desire. It means that they thought it meant to be someone who was low and, and debased and who was very unworthy as a humble person because they had such a prideful attitude. Now, John Wesley speculates that the first time the word humility probably used was Paul himself, perhaps, first using God's word. Because Christians are characterized by being humble, not, not the world. The world doesn't think that way. Christians are characterized by being, being very humble people. But the prideful people, they saw humility in the Roman world as being a weakness. They had no, no word to describe this lowness state of mind in a positive way. They thought it would be shameful or cowardly to describe someone that manner. But biblically, humility characterized the Christian not as weak, not as debased, not, not as cowardly, but it means to have lowness in your mind. You put other people first. You want to remove all, 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 all pride within your life. And humility certainly is foundational within our Christian faith, within our walk. Philippians 2, 8, 9 describes our humble Lord when he says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Humility certainly is a foreign concept to the way that the world thinks, but the Christian is called to be humble. We're not called to have me time or to have our voice expressed or have my truth expressed out there. We are called to be humble and broken, broken below God's word, to hear God's word, humble ourselves below it, and to submit to our Lord's word. But humility certainly begins with proper self-awareness we need to have, awareness that we are believers in Christ and that we are apt to have pride within our hearts and lives. We're apt to act in a prideful manner, to allow our flesh to sometimes rule over us for a short period of time. But we need to see ourselves as fragile creatures that are open to pride coming into our hearts and lives and realize we need to ask God for help in the, in the process, to continually confess our sins before our Lord when we do have pride. John MacArthur says, continual confession characterizes Christians. That's pretty good, four C's. Continual confession characterizes Christians. And that's the heart of a Christian, the way that he has to be. But to, 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 to do with your, 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 your pride, you've got to have an awareness as what can possibly happen within your heart. You also need to see that Christ ultimately was the ultimate person who was humble. Christ was the humblest person who ever lived. 1 John 2, 6 we are to walk in the same manner as he walked. Romans 12.10 said, Be devoted to one another in brother love. Give preference to one another in honor. We are to show preference to each other. Philippians 2.3, 
do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We regard each, regard each other as more important than ourselves. That's a challenge, certainly, to lift other people up before ourselves. And Paul says, if you're going to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, you're going to make sure your heart is humble and broken for our Lord, trusting upon him to help you along the process. Then Paul says, gentleness. We've got to have gentleness. Gentleness characterizes the believer in Christ. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, with patience and gentleness. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. When, when, when the soldiers came to, to arrest Jesus Christ, Christ modeled gentleness to us, believers in Christ. Peter, as you remember, drew his sword to try to defend Christ, and he took off the ear, the ear of, of the high priest. In Matthew 26, 52, Christ says to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword should perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will not at once put all, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it, may, it must happen this way? Christ showed gentleness, and of course he healed the ear, right, of, of the high priest. Christ chose to, to hold back his power. To, he could have sent the heavenly angels down to destroy the entire legion, all of mankind if he had chose to do so, all the Roman Empire if he chose to, to do so. But instead, Christ modeled to us, he displays to us gentleness, what it means to be gentle for the world to see. And Christ is more interested in fulfilling his father's will here than to try to hurt and stop a soldier from arresting him. Christ showed gentleness and compassion as he healed the ear of the high, servant of the high priest. And we are called to show gentleness to each other as we interact with each other. Gentleness when we speak to each other, which can always be challenging sometimes. Careful the words we speak upon to each other. Always aware that we need to be gentle. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We need to constantly consider the words that we say to each other. Praying about it when we need, 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 need to talk to somebody. If you need to go talk to somebody, pray about it beforehand. Consider your words before you talk to somebody. How you going to speak to that person? Encourage that person before and after you have that conversation with them. And speak to them with a gentle, loving spirit. But big, meekness and gentleness are always done with self-control. We display, as Christ did, self-control when we control our anger, when we control our emotions, when we use discernment about what to say at the right time to a person. Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules the spirit, than he who captures a city. Better. When we relate to each other, we need to make sure we correct our brothers in a gentle way. 2 Timothy 2.24, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. We need to correct each other at times, certainly, but we need to do so in, in a gentle manner. When we share the gospel with unbelievers, we need to be gentle as do so. Certainly God is a God who is holy and pure and the judgment to speak upon to the unbelieving world of condemnation and hell, but you need to do so in a loving, gentle manner when we speak to the unbeliever, knowing that if it was by the grace of God, we've been in the same place. Christ has not saved our own souls. We've been in the same spot. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, 
not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. And Paul begs us here that while we walk in a manner with his calling, that we do so with gentleness in our hearts. Make sure we, we do that. Thirdly, Paul says, make sure you have patience. Patience or, or long-suffering. And then and I was talking about what means to be patient. I was thinking, what, when am I not patient? So I was thinking, well, I'm not patient when people are eating cereal. That slurping sound, that, that soup sound, I'm not patient. I want to leave the room or ask them to leave the room. I'm not, I'm not patient with people that are, that are lazy around me. I don't like laziness, but I need to be more patient with people. We all need to be more patient with each other because patience characterizes the Christian. It's who we are because it is who Christ is. Paul tells us to walk in a manner with it. He tells us that we are to, to be patient or long-suffering. And that, of course, is the very opposite of having quick anger or to have resentment or to have even revenge upon a person because you're angry. Instead of being quick to, to react, you're supposed to be patient and long-suffering to other people. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We are called to forgive each other. And Hebrews 6.15 tells us that God gave Abraham the promise of blessing him with the great nation someday. And, and Abraham was patient to, to be able to, to know that someday it would take place. Now, it didn't take place in his life. It took place later on in Isaac and his sentence of life. There was a great nation. But Hebrews 6.15 tells us that, that Abraham patiently waited for this promise to take place. In faith, ultimately the promise wasn't completed until after his death took place in his sentence. But, but, but Abraham's sin was patient. And we are, we are called that if we're going to walk in a walk, which is where the calling which the Lord asks us to do, we've got to have a patient life. Be patient, long-suffering with each other as our Lord was for us before we became saved. I, I, I probably heard the gospel three, four, five times maybe before I got saved maybe, right? And it came to a point where it was clear in my mind as to what the, the consequences were as to damnation before it all set in my brain. It takes a while before the unbeliever can put it all together, the gospel message, to see the goodness and grace and love of Christ. But God in his patient, long-suffering, patiently waits for mankind to do so. He patiently waited today. Today, we woke up today, the world still exists. Christ is still long-suffering toward the unbelieving world, knowing that people today have the opportunity to come to church today. People have the opportunity to hear the gospel proclaimed today. Screaming to us how we need to share the gospel with people. We're part of the process here, right? We're not just to say, oh, good, God's loving and long-suffering, good for him, and I'll go on with my love my day. No, God calls us to look at our, our loved ones, our families, our friends. Say, who, do I, who do I need to share the Christ with? Yes, yes, God is long-suffering and patient, but he uses his church to, to reach the unbelieving world. We have to get proper perspective here. And Paul says, you know what? You've got to be patient with each other. Fourthly, forbearing love. Paul says we have to have forbearing love to each other, which means showing tolerance for one another, to put up with, to bear with, to endure, even to, to suffer with. We had to do that with fellow believers in Christ. And the world soon doesn't have any, any patience or forbearing love as we do. Unbelievers are quick to judge each other and put others into categories and cast them aside if they don't like what, the way that they think and to, and to cancel them, so to speak. 
we're called to have forbearing love toward each other. It's part of who we are. It's part of our very nature. Why? Because Christ has ultimate forbearing love toward us upon the cross. He forgave us for our sins. He forgave us what we did. And in Matthew 18, when Peter asked Jesus how often that he should forgive a brother who sinned against him, Jesus responded, not seven times, but what? Seventy times seven. Forgive your brother. Forgive him. Have forbearing love toward them. Your love for them is more important than holding back upon your anger towards them. Your love for them is more important than you feeling that that pleasure of being mad. Not as important. To show love for that person. And for me, Christ had amazing forbearing love for me for 32 years. I walked this world as an unbeliever. 32 years. And Christ, by his love, was able to, to, to change my heart. I used to talk to uh, um, Christians about how wrong they were. I used to tell Christians how they need to change their faith and stop believing in Jesus Christ. I used to tell them that they were wrong and that they, they, should, they should believe upon people. I can do all things to me who strengthens me. That was my mentality. And I found it pleasurable when I tried to get a Christian to denounce their faith to some degree. We Christians and go toward humanity and lift, lift humanity up. That's a shame to me today. But God, by his forbearing love, had patience upon my soul and changed me. 32 years of living that life. Now my desire still is to, to be on the other side and to proclaim Christ for the rest of my life. But 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We need to have forbearing love for believers and forbearing love for unbelievers also. And we are not to excuse the sins of each other, certainly, but we are to forgive each other when they do sin against us. We forgive them and love them as if they never had sinned before against us, as though they never had spoken against us. That's Christ's forbearing love. He also asks us to say to, to have unity in the Father. Paul says, to walk in a manner worthy this company given to us, and to do so, you must have unity in the Father. He says, he says in verse 3, look back if you would, to Ephesians 4, 3. Paul says, Be, being diligent to preserve unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, he says. There is one body and one Spirit, just as they also were called in one hope, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What characterizes the Christian is that he, he strives to preserve unity. And Paul tells us to, to make haste, to, to be diligent, to try to preserve, to be zealous to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now we know that we don't, we don't create unity in the church, Christ already has given us unity, but we're supposed to be diligent and have zeal to mind to maintain that unity. God creates it within us. We are, we are told in Scripture to, to keep and to preserve the unity that has already been created by Christ already, this Father already, the church. It's already been given to us. We, we, we are told to not to, to destroy that unity. Romans 15, 5 says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians automatically have a unity of the Spirit. By the very nature of being saved and born again, you're united under Christ, you have the mind of Christ. We are Christians. We are brothers in Christ automatically. 
once we become Christian, we're automatically placed in the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of the body of Christ, as, as we know. Spiritually, we are given gifts that we can use to edify and build up the, build up the body of Christ. There's a beauty within the church already established. God has already done this already in us. He's created the church already for us. A beautiful plan of salvation to use the church to share to the unbelieving world. A means of worshiping together. And we, we have the potential of destroying that to some degree. Usually because of our pride and our sin. Usually because of so. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live but in faith, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The very nature of man is to be a believer in Christ, is to have unity with each other. And we as fellow believers in Christ are certainly scattered on the world, but we, we, we're united in him. We're united in him. When two unbelievers, strangers meet on the other side of this country or another part of the world, Myanmar, just came back from there, you go and give them a hug, don't you? You give a brother and sister a hug. You don't even know that person. You're a complete stranger walks in. You give him a, a hug or a kiss on the cheek because you're believers in Christ. You're like, unbelievable word be like, what are you doing? You don't even know that that stranger because you're united already in Christ under him. He has the same Bible you do. He goes to a church as you do also. He prays and glorifies Christ as you do also. And it's such a beauty in, in going to another country and seeing the believers in Christ that think the same way. I remember when I went to Russia, Tom, Tom and I, were, we were going to some small village to the side somewhere, maybe an hour away. We were driving the car, as you might remember. And I was in the back seat with this other Russian pastor, I guess. And we're like looking at each other like, we can't talk. He speaks Russian. And I didn't have an interpreter there. Tommy and the other guys in the front seat, right? But I thought, we got an hour here. But I thought, you know what? I just started getting my Bible. And I found the book of John. I think it was John 3, 16, maybe. And he found his Bible. And I showed him that verse like, and he started, he went to another verse. And he pointed his verse, and I was like, yeah, you know? And we looked at each other, we had a whole conversation about half an hour on verses in God's word. Because we love Christ together, and he was going to give a message, and I was going to give a message, but we had some time to kill. And it was certainly was a blessing, because we're united under Christ. We have the same purpose and motivation, to honor our Lord, to glorify him. And Paul says, you need to make sure you walk in a worthy which is worthy of your calling, to be united under Christ. He says, be diligent to preserve that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, he says. We're never to be odds with unbelievers. We're never to be odds with other believers in Christ. We are not to argue with other believers in Christ. It should be, not be a time where you say, I just don't get along with that guy in church. What is that? You can't say, I don't get along with the person. I just don't. We just, just rubs me the wrong way. No. Christians don't have anybody in the church they don't get along with because they're called to love them, to put them first, to go to that person and get right with that person. You should get along with every single person within the church. We should never hear how they, they have some problems of, 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 of not wanting to forgive each other. And we're very blessed at our church. As elders, we have very few times in which we have to have some people talk to each other and solve some problems together. There's a beauty that Christ came into the church where you guys just get along really well and you know God's word well enough that you go to that person and work it out. You solve the problem on your own. There's a beauty within the church there. We don't spend our time at hours having this person arguing, that person arguing, trying to resolve that problem because there, there's a unity within the body of Christ. People see that. We don't hold grudges against each other. We don't have resentment with each other. 
Well, the, the, the world soon encouraged people to stick to their guns and, and stand for your rights and allow that person to, to, to ask you for forgiveness first. The church is not like that. We are quick to go to our brother, to get right with them, to maintain that relationship. Why? Because of Christ's sake. To maintain the beauty of the church. And Paul says there's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Believers in Christ united under, under one body. All of us part of one by Christ, the body. We're all part of this one spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sins, causes us to repent, creates in us a new heart and a new life. He's the one who placed into the body of Christ in the first place. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. But even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made a drink of one spirit. Colossians 12, 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Paul says, goes on to say, we are united under one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, he says. Emphasizing how we're united together under one common goal, believers in Christ, united together. We don't have to try to be united. If we behave as we should and follow God's word, it will naturally take place, naturally. The beauty of it. Father's will take place. God's will take place. We serve together with the desire to please our Lord. And it's, it's such beauty to be able to go to different ministries. The only ministry I really can't go to is a women's ministry, Right? But I try to go all the ministry I possibly can and see how they interact with each other. See the blessing that people serve in our church and to do so because they're motivated to want to honor the Lord, not because they want to receive any kind of recognition. Right? All the, the ministers of our church are such a blessing to, to be part of. We love his church. We love the church. We love being with the people of God. We look forward to Sunday. We look forward to Wednesday. There's such a beauty in worshiping together, praising God together such a beauty in, in reading God's word together, such a beauty in seeing people submitting to God's word, submitting to a truth together. We cling to Christ together. The, the church shows the unbeliever the unity of our faith. The unbeliever comes into the doors here and says, this church is united in some, some manner which is different than the entire world. They love each other. They want to spend time with each other. We're not quick to leave each other. And you see, the, you see I see the youth hang out together. They just love being with each other. You see the Spanish ministry hanging out together? They love being together. We, we love each other as a church. We love spending time with each other. The unbelievers see us united under loving Christ, under a common purpose, under, under God's word. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 3, he says, Be diligent to present the unity of the Spirit. One God, one Father, for all who is over all and through all and in all. God is over all. But characterize the believer in Christ that he is diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, to stand strong upon the Spirit. And Paul says, you're going to walk in a manner with a calling. You need to make sure you preserve unity. But what is it that can potentially, possibly, break our unity? Because if we're called to preserve unity, that means, of course, we can do things that can break the unity of the, of the church, right? What is it that causes us to break the unity which we're called to naturally happen? It, 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 it takes work, though, to break the unity of the spirits, but it possibly can, can happen. We have to, to actively sin, actively refuse to forgive. 
We have to actively be stubborn. You have to be actively walk in the flesh to break the unity. You have to ignore the prompt of the Holy Spirit to tell you to do the very opposite. And to do so, you can break the unity of the church temporarily. Not ultimately, because God's church will persevere to the end. But there's times in which we can break unity within each other. We break the bonds of unity when we don't follow God's word. We don't follow his word. We break the unity when we are divisive within the church. We try to divide things, whether intentionally or not intentionally. Something people like to see people fight. People enjoy seeing a good fight. And when they hear someone's arguing with another person, it gives them pleasure. How sick are we to want to have people fight around it? That, that's our flesh which comes out, which is against the church. We are called not to be divisive, but that is sin. We make unity with the church when we grumble against each other, when we criticize each other, or when we don't want to forgive each other. We make the unity of, of the church. We make unity when we let our pride and egos lead us in the church. We make unity when we trust our friends' opinions more than our elders' advice. When we trust our friends' opinions more than we trust God's word. When we, 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 when we trust our emotions more than God's word, we make unity. We'll go in the wrong direction. We make unity when we allow false teaching to our church. When we compromise, we make unity to the church. We allow things to go wrong. We need to stand strong in God's word, trusting that he, his plan will take place. His church will exist. You can't stop God's church. You can't do it. You might stop in your own personal life and sin for a while, maybe pull another person down for a while, but ultimately Christ's church will exist to the very end. He's God. He's powerful over all things. He controls his church. He controls every single believer in his church. He gives the Holy Spirit within every one of us. His church will persevere to the very end. And you need to get a larger perspective than yourself. God's church must be glorified to the very end. God's kingdom will take place. And Paul said you've got to be diligent to preserve that unity. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are united together. The unity of the Holy Spirit can't be broken, and Christ's church cannot be destroyed. His church, which is the bride of Christ, will be sanctified. And one day his church shall be presented back to the Father. The church, the bride, us, and his purity and holiness shall be given back from Christ back to the Father. Right now, we're with Christ's hands. He's purifying his people, cleansing his people. But we are just a gift. We're a gift back to the Father one day. We present it back to the Father. The church is, and all its purity and holiness. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians 5.27. You're close by there. Look at Ephesians 5.27. It's a beautiful verse of scripture over here. It says that he might present himself to church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. There's a beautiful verse to think about. God's church in all her glory, no spot or wrinkle, shall be given back to the Father someday. She would be holy and blameless. That, that is our desire, that we might be a blameless, holy church, serving our Lord, honoring our Lord, as the Lord would ask us to, 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 to have opportunity to do so. But our Lord creates this beautiful church for us to be able to serve within and to be able to honor each other within. And Paul calls us that. We know you need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And Paul wants to see our calling and afterwards walk that walk. Show gentleness and patient unity with the body of Christ as you make sure you, you do what our Lord asks us to do. And we need to ask ourselves, am I walking a spiritual walk worthy of our Lord? Or do I need to, to deal with something in my life? 
Am I daily representing Christ as I show humility and gentleness and love toward others? Or do I need to work on that? Am I focusing on maintaining the body of Christ? Or am I saying or doing something that can be divisive? I trust our Lord that you have been faithful in your walk. We're waiting for our Lord to return. Let's call. We're called to be faithful to do the work of the ministry until he does return. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord God, for a time to give to us to think about your word and the exhortation your word gives to us, Father, to think about our lives and to walk a walk in a, in a world that which is worthy of what you've given to us, Father. You've given us so much, Lord, an inheritance, salvation, our family, our church, other friends here, Father, and we're thankful, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see our responsibility afterwards, Father, to walk in a manner that which honors our Lord, honors your church, and that we might be able to present it back to our Lord ultimately for your glory. We, present, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.